0: Hello and welcome back to another edition of Why Football Happens, the podcast that brings you the ins and outs of the world of football. And this was very much an impromptu podcast that we weren't expecting to do. But after a great bit of discussion on our WhatsApp group with myself, Ollie Wilson, Stephen Drennan, Ben Jacobs and Paul McDonald, we decided we would sit down, get on the microphones and have a discussion about everything that went on in the coverage and how the situation was dealt with of course, with Christian Eriksson in the Denmark versus Finland game at Euro 2020. We recorded this on Saturday, the 12th of June, late in the evening UK time. As we recorded, Christian Eriksson was in a hospital bed in a stable condition, and that was the important thing. But we wanted to talk about how the events were broadcast, were shown to the world, and some of the reaction we had to what took place down on the field in Copenhagen. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Let's kick it off with Ben Jacobs giving us the technical outline of what is meant to happen in these situations as a broadcaster.
1: see, people watching the game are in different regions and therefore the reaction against their specific TV provider, the BBC, for example, has been largely anger because after the incident happened, too much of the detail was shown, particularly the CPR, but also turning to Ericsson's partner and seeing her being consoled as well. And it was obvious after... Christian collapse, the the rest of the Denmark players were shielding him, and the severity of the situation was obvious instantly, and at that point those watching will pin the consequences on an individual broadcaster, but it's important to note that all of the broadcasters are taking one feed from the host feed. So really, you've got two options when, in this case, a medical emergency happens. Option number one is an individual broadcaster. You make your own decision, which means that you can cut off the feed. You can go back to the studio. You can put a graphic over it and just use voiceover and so on. And that seems like the easiest approach. But it's important to note that not every presentation team is instantly ready to go at the drop of a hat because some of them move positions, some of them might not be mic'd up, there might be technical issues and so on. And one of the reasons why who
2: who would make that decision, just out of curiosity, like who's the person that calls whether to stay on the broadcast or, or to go or to switch?
1: Well, inside the individual broadcasters, they'll have their own galleries and there'll be both a producer and a director. And there'll probably be somebody else with senior oversight that might have to be called on a phone because they're not actually working on that shift or directly across the situation. But it obviously happens very fast and the host broadcaster has to balance their live output and the commentary, say Jonathan Pearce at the BBC or Derek Ray working for ESPN versus the what do we do next and what's going to happen here. And obviously, as soon as you see that CPR is being given... You know that you're going to have to eventually cut back to the studio, but it's how quickly you can do that. But I think the point that people forget is that, yes, every broadcaster should have cut to the studio as soon as possible, but it's not on those individual broadcasters. It's on the host feed. And the big mistake in this instance is that the host feed being provided to every single broadcaster chose to go into a level of detail with the shots instead of following protocol. And protocol, as per UEFA, is to go in a medical emergency or, say, even a streaker or an unexplained moment or a security threat to the widest possible shot. And that's also in the Ofcom rules, which are sort of mirrored internationally, and there's a section in those rules that say suffering and distress, broadcasters should not take or broadcast footage or audio of people caught up in emergencies, victims of accidents, or those suffering a personal tragedy, even in a public place where that results in an infringement of privacy, unless it's warranted or the people concerned have given consent. So no consent was given. It was a medical emergency. Like I say, UEFA adopt those broad guidelines, so therefore the host feed in that gallery, the director should have gone immediately once it was clear that it was a medical emergency to the widest and most detailless possible shot.
0: It's, it's, it's really interesting hearing how that's the actual protocol. The only thing that I would say, which is decisions are made in the heat of the moment and there's nobody in that gallery is going to be expecting anything like that to happen quite clearly and obviously protocols are there for a reason and they should be adhered to but i do think that there was i mean i i i I, like you guys i've watched so much football in my life i've watched so much sport in my life where that seems to be the general consensus of when you know somebody is down on the field visibly in distress or something happens they cut to the big wide shot the isometric angle from the stadium you can't really see what's going on but maybe you can see the paramedics coming on or security dealing with the issue from a wide angle I actually think because the Danish team made that wall of privacy around Ericsson I think the broadcasters in that moment felt it was okay to go to those shots because they wanted to try and almost capture the emotion of ericsson's teammates around that incident now i'm not saying whether that's right or wrong but this is what i think may have gone through what was going on in the gallery and because they created that wall as well if you know and if you've got any sort of insight into what the medical staff was going on you know exactly what they were doing for for ericsson they were giving him cpr you could quite clearly see the jolt i think of a defibrillator as well but they created that wall which meant that those closer up shots weren't as distressing as if they hadn't been there and i think that was a judgment probably made on the fly in a panicked moment by the broadcasters in that in that ob truck in that moment and that's why we saw what we saw and and yes it was distressing but there's also an element to some extent of you need to show what is happening like obviously there are protocols but this is also an incredible situation It's not completely clear in the viewer's eye everything that's going on, but you get an understanding of the severity of the situation, particularly at this sort of Euros. Everybody is so far apart and disorientated around Europe. There's an inability to travel. Ericsson would have friends and family all over the continent who would probably value seeing roughly what is going on in that moment and would certainly value, for instance, the, the photo shot of him upright in a medical chair looking... Uh, not okay I mean, but I being taken
1: agree off agree with that I mean obviously Stephen and Paul will have thoughts as well but just briefly at my end I think that you always by protocol have to play it safe like I get what you're saying about the circumstances and that it's a split second decision and it needs guidance and it needs leadership but the point here is this that the manner in which he claps to begin with was off the ball and a stumble and that's the same kind of collapse as say Fabrice Moamba in 2012 and as soon as you see a player go down like that regardless of if he gets back up regardless of if it turns into a medical emergency that needs things like CPR you know that that is in big big trouble and then Simon Kier who acted like a hero comes in first and he realizes the severity and he puts Ericsson into a recovery position and at that point you go out as wide as possible because even though you say that friends and family of Ericsson might have been interested and even though I fully accept it's a big moment the point here is in any medical emergency like I was at the King Power Stadium for the helicopter crash that unfortunately killed the owner Kung Vishai and again there was lots of speculation lots of social media lots of reaction it wasn't caught on camera because it was after the match But you never, ever, ever, even if it's positive, speculate in a medical emergency. You never, ever, ever show anything. Because as you've alluded to, there's his friends and his family watching. There's his girlfriend at the stadium. There's his teammates right there. And even if it's positive, if you start showing too much, you send panic, you send distress because they don't know what's going on. So the first protocol is out of respect to the player, the team, the friends, the family, when it's a medical emergency, you go out wide, you get off the feed as quick as possible, you let the medics do their work, and when you've got an official update, you bring it to people.
2: Yeah, I mean, my perspective on that is, as soon as I saw the circle around the player, that's a signal to the broadcaster that whatever's happening in there isn't something for our eyes. It, it's It's something that's very... Private And as, as for the family wanting to have information, I, I think about um, when Kobe Bryant died and the reaction of his wife to knowing that pictures were taken and published of his death um, and how furious she was with that and, and outraged that that moment was shared with the world. So I, I imagine while they want information, they would be more concerned about the, the privacy of the family and not having pictures of possibly Christian Erikson's dead face on on the internet. So I, I don't think they, they I, I think the right thing to do, as Ben says, is they need to go to the wide shot as quick as possible and then get back into the studio as quick as possible so that they can talk about it without having to broadcast it. Well
3: i just add to that is I was um I was actually out in the car um, with, with my son when um I listening to the radio on the way back to the house when um when it happened. I think it was Vicky Sparks and um it was Pat and on the on the radio commentary. And within about ninety seconds, um they had taken both both of those uh, people off the air because they knew it was an extraordinarily dangerous um, and difficult situation. But to save those two from trying to speculate through an incident for which they had absolutely no knowledge whatsoever, BBC Five Live did absolutely the right thing and took both of them off the air immediately and switched over to the cricket. And um, so then I finished the rest of my, my car journey home and I get in the house and the TV footage is still broadcasting from side to stadium. Now that that's that's clearly two separate arms of the BBC operating under two different editorial procedures. But to me, like the one, the radio procedure was obviously the best because they didn't want to speculate. Pat and Evan was abundantly clear to the listener that this was not a, a run the mill incident. This was something that was much more serious than that. And rather than have those two stumble through it and try and speculate, they immediately took them out of the situation. And I, th- I think that was very... Um, mature broadcasting for the BBC to do that but then it was at least another 7-8 minutes before I got home and we're still looking at Christian Erikson's wife at the side of the pitch being consoled that's voyeurism I'm afraid um, yeah. there's no other word for that and um, I was stunned that that was still on the
2: air I'm very cynical and, and my immediate reaction when I see things like that is is knowing that people are desperate for information and also people are a bit morbid and so if, if there's one channel that's doing the right thing and cutting away from it. There'll be assholes flicking the channel to say, no, I want to see it. And so they know that they'll probably lose viewing figures and, and again, very cynical me thinks that they probably stay on the air showing some footage of some sort simply for that reason.
3: And this, is, this, this day to me is showing the absolute total and utter worst of this so-called social platform called Twitter. Yeah, It's a horror show of a place. One of the worst human inventions since the nuclear bomb. And this is a this is a quintessential example of how toxic and disgusting that place was. All you had to do was Google Ericsson, or sorry, search for Ericsson on Twitter as soon as you got in the house to see that people scrambling over the top of each other to film their own TVs in in the mm. absent chase for likes and retweets. Well done, guys. Hope it was all worth it. Pathetic.
0: I have to say the 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 footage that was where. Regardless of, you know, you can, I would understand editorial decisions that went into some of the camera footage that was shown in a panic and in a kind of having been in a lot of newsrooms as opposed to sports newsrooms and and seeing the way that that can work and how editors have made certain decisions like that previously. But the footage then of Ericsson's wife on the sideline, that went from being part of the story to a glorification of the story Uh, and and trying to put like a reality tv style element to it which was completely unnecessary because this was something that happened in a in a sporting context and it was very unpleasant to watch but then to try and make something out of somebody else's grief in that immediate moment i thought was very crass and and as you say i think paul going i mean twitter's i think we all know twitter is a useful place for work at times and a horrendous place for anything and everything else and yeah the not only people recording their televisions but the kind of the the sycophantic tweets that you sometimes get of people making it more about themselves at times as well when it's like look can we just hope that he's okay um once right, it was I, all- just
3: ask you guys, I, I, an honest question here um we are we are hearing reports and it's I think it's been confirmed, but that that Ericsson had asked his teammates to finish the game. Um, do you think that decision should be left to him and his teammates?
2: No. To, to make and that I'm call?
3: I mean, from- I'm, I'm absolutely staggered that game to finished tonight. I can't believe it. I still can't believe that game. Like In 10 years' time, 15 years' time, we'll be looking back at this day and going, oh, by the way, I'll be telling Alex, my son, oh, by the way, they finished that game that day with those players' teammates nearly dying in front of their eyes but UEFA's got a schedule to keep, so they finished the game. Like, I don't care. I really don't care whether Ericsson told them they finished the game or not. The guys had a pretty traumatic experience and usually people who suffer severe trauma, we tend to allow them a bit of time to, to rest and recuperate. We don't ask them, oh, by the way, can the guys finish the game? I'm 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 still at, 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 at a loss to work out how that decision has, has came to pass. The Belgium and Russia came a little less, right, because the players are there, they're, they're ready, and like even still, Lukaku, Vertongen out very recent teammates of Ericsson, right? So I can only imagine what was going through their head, but I can understand slightly why that game goes ahead. This one, I just, I, I whether the players in, agreed as a collective or not, somebody had to be the bigger man here in the stand and say, no, this isn't a decision for you people who have suffered something seriously dramatic. Let's take the decision out of your hands and play it again at another time. And I don't think anybody involved in the tournament could have said anything about it. It reminded me, Paul, a little bit of the 98 World Cup final
1: where there's a bit of mystique as well, but essentially Ronaldo Mm -hmm. swallowed his tongue and then the match still went ahead. And of course the team was shaken and they underperformed and they lost the game. And this is a more severe situation than that. And obviously we don't know yet recording this podcast the exact details of what has happened we're just aware that it was serious we're aware that there was cpr and now we're aware that he's talking and he's stable in hospital so having had a conversation with his teammates that will have been a factor as will the medical report as to what happened but regardless of how quickly he may or may not have recovered and what his current health is There's, as you alluded to, the fact that at the point the incident happened, it was horrifying. At the point the incident happened, he wasn't conscious for a period of time. At the point the incident happened, CPR was necessary. And as you say, when you have that level of trauma, it's going to affect all the players. So I was also very surprised that the game continued and not surprised at all that Denmark went on to lose the game when it resumed.
2: Yeah, I mean... My immediate reaction to it was that um, delayed shocks are a real thing. And having just witnessed someone that, that you're friends with and, and love almost dying on the pitch, there's no way you can mentally be in the right state of mind to play a football match, but even to make a decision to play a football match. It, it should be in the same way as concussion protocol. You have to take the decision out of the hands of the person who's traumatized. You can't like go to them and say, okay, do you want to play the match? The player who almost died said it's okay for you to play the match. Do you want to play the match? Yeah, and everyone seems
3: okay with us. That's the thing. Everyone seems okay. Oh, let's just get back to the normal. Oh, oh, that was a that was a crazy two hours, guys. Let's get back to the schedule for the tournament. I, I no, but can't... I,
0: I can understand. I I can't understand the players being allowed to make that decision. But I can understand why, if the players were allowed to make that decision, that they made the decision they made, and that and if that was put in their hands rightly or wrongly then i can understand why they would have said let's go out and finish this game rather than going back having to sit and dwell and deal with it because it's a it's an easy case of modern day society of sitting and dwelling and dealing with problems isn't the way things are done it's like no let's just keep going keep going keep going on to the next one and and they've gone there they've as prepared as they're ever going to be they think perhaps like, look, this. we can take our minds off what we've just seen and we, could, if we can try and focus back down on everything else, then that can give us a, a sense of normality in this quite horrific moment. So for the players to have made that decision, if that's what they actually did and if they were given that opportunity to make that choice, I understand that. The The bigger question is, should they have been allowed to even make that decision?
3: Yeah, yeah I, think- I agree. I mean, just, sorry, Stephen, just okay. very quickly, I just... um. It's, it's, a, it's an incident that, that hit quite close to home. For me, again, I don't want to make this sound all about me or anything like that, because it's obviously not, but Phil Adorno was, was Murrell captain in 2007 who suffered a cardiac arrest on the pitch. Um, he was stretched off that day, and they finished that game with his nephew, David Clarkson, playing up front for Murrell, who didn't even know whether his uncle was dead or alive. Now, I mean, at the very least here, we've had a gap. Right, and we will found out that the person involved is fit and, hap- and happy to continue to, to, to the game, to continue allegedly, right? But I just can't understand the thought process, good or bad result, um, that allows people to be put in that position where they have to make that call and make it in a very small time frame and immediately after the incident because otherwise, well, UEFA's got three games tomorrow, guys, so we can't play it then. We need to get it done today. And just, it's just, I, I know... A lot more stuff's going to come out about this, but my immediate reaction to it is that irrespective of what Ericsson has said, irrespective of what the players have been allowed to say, that, that the fact that that game has been allowed to finish today is not a good look for UEFA. I think yeah. just on that point, Paul,
1: sorry, Stephen, I know you wanted to come in with something. The protocol, again, as I understand it, talking now with the information we have to hand, is that UEFA didn't stipulate either way. So it was a request from both teams collectively that they wanted to complete the game. Now, you can debate whether that's right or wrong, but I don't think UEFA had an active say. I don't think that they were stipulating that based upon the schedule or based upon the rules or based upon the fact that Ericsson was stable, they had to finish the game. So I think the decision has solely been placed into the hands of both sets of players and has obviously in part been defined by Christian Eriksen seemingly FaceTiming the Denmark squad and saying that he would like them to complete the game but what we don't know and I think this is crucial is exactly what's happened so we can speculate which is a bad thing and we know what certain images have implied particularly around CPR and everyone ultimately saw him collapse at that point onwards I turned away from the television I turned it off and I moved on and I've not seen all of the detail as a consequence again out of respect now he's okay there's an argument that you could go back and look at it to understand a little bit more detail but my point is is that the players probably know the exact medical situation they know exactly what's happened so people on social media will speculate based on what they've seen they might be right they might be wrong all we know is that he was put in a recovery position by Simon Kier. It looked like in the initial shots that we saw that the tongue was pushed in a position where it could no longer be swallowed. And then as has been widely reported, there was a form of CPR given. So people naturally talk about cardiac arrest and they go to all kinds of different conclusions and they compare it to people like Fabrice Moamba and naturally speculation leads to rumour and leads to misleading stories. And I guess all I want to emphasise is that the players presumably know the medical reality now because he's in a stable condition. And that medical reality may well have defined if they did or didn't want to continue the game. So it's not just that he's okay, it's he's okay because of X. And X is the medical prognosis or the medical reality or a clarification of exactly what happened. That's not being released. It may never even become public knowledge. I'm sure that we will learn about it at some point if Christian is okay, he may well talk openly about it. But again, when we're defining should they or shouldn't they have played the game, that aspect that we don't yet know, I think, is crucial to the decision making.
2: Yeah, the thing for me that, that I noticed is that um, Simon Kier come off the pitch pretty quickly after the uh, after the goal was conceded. I think it was, um, and he, he he didn't appear to have an injury or anything. And it, um, and I think also the 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 way the goal came about and the fact that it was right at and he didn't react to it, and the, the players um losing the guy that scored the bullet it all just sort of suggests that the the players aren't in the right frame of mind to play a football match and and again i think the decision has to be taken away from them um you can't have the person who's suffering from a trauma deciding whether or not they can play a football match because Stephen, it's like why do we have concussion protocol why yeah. don't we just ask the players if they can play on exactly that's exactly it and and you can't it, if the whole point is that people suffering from a trauma or people suffering from a concussion, they're not in the right state of mind to make uh, decisions, then you can't ask them to make the decision on whether to play or not. And so it, 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 the whole thing just, it just feels off for me. I mean, the, the things I would applaud is the fact that um, kier knows CPR, and, and I guess all players should know CPR on some minimal level, and that seems to have saved um, vital seconds, vital minutes in the situation. Um, and also the fact that we now have defibrillators and oxygen tanks in the stadium, because even just thinking back like 10 years, we didn't. And again, that that makes the difference. Um, and, and these things are all good things and positive changes we've made for the game. But we're still asking people suffering from a trauma, whether or not they're physically able to, to play a football match, where we know at the elite level, like a difference of like 5% is is massive. Uh, just like slightly being off concentration is is the difference in a game, and so I just don't understand how we can ask the players like immediately, immediately after this happens, are you okay to play a football match? It just nah, don't Stephen, do that.
3: Stephen, I saw you tweeting about it earlier about. I mean, the physical load that's on players. I mean, this is something that I alluded to a little bit in the our podcast with, with Ollie last night about how tired those those Turkish players looked um, after half an hour of that game last night, let alone the end of it. And um, nobody seems to be listening to this or caring. Um, players, are, players are suffering from the longest, <laughs> the longest, shortest season ever, if that makes sense, in terms of how sque- they've squeezed everything into this. And like you're, you've got Marcus Laurenti coming out and saying that um, there was times at the end of the season point for Atletico where he physically couldn't run anymore. His legs just wouldn't do what his brain was asking them to. And yet we're pushing these guys back out for another seven games in 30 days. And it's all it all comes back to the competing interests at the top of the game, which I'm sure Ben can, can to touch on a little bit more, but it's the power struggle between Infantino and, and Seferin at the top levels of FIFA and UEFA that, are, that mean we get the UEFA Conference League, that mean we get stupid Club World Cups in the summer, which mean we get expanded World Cup tournaments. It's those two fighting for supremacy and fighting for the control of the, the future of the game without any any indication or, or, or show of duty of care to any player that's causing this. Um, yeah. And that's not what's happened in this case. This is, this is obviously coronavirus is meaning we are squeezing in seasons, but that's what's going to happen in the future. That's the way it's going. We've got a Europa Conference League coming next season for a bunch of teams that don't even want to be in it. And I think somebody somewhere has to turn around and say, no, guys, this is just enough. And I think... FIFA Pro have tried, and FIFA Pro have got their at-the-limit report that they keep putting out, but FIFA Pro just don't have enough sway to make things happen. They, they talk a good game, and, and they certainly put together detailed reports, but ultimately, they don't have any power to do anything with them. And maybe it's going to take an incident like this, if it's tied back to kind of fatigue or physicality, that maybe could be a, a trigger to get us to fix some things here, because this just can't continue.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it might also be similar to the situation with footballers heading the ball, um, connecting the amnesia. And it's probably something we don't realise the damage that we're doing until we get further down the line uh, and we're able to, to like, prove it years and years from now. Because th- there's loads of reports saying about how players who get coronavirus um, come back at, like, um, 60% of them have um, heart or lung or brain damage. Um, and, and yet we're asking them to, like, take two weeks off for coronavirus and then hop back back into playing sport. Um, as a Liverpool fan this season, I've, I've been very conscious of the fact that like um, Sadio Mane got coronavirus and people were criticising him all season after it for not being at the same level. And it was just like, again, it's I have no idea what physical impact that had on him and I don't want to speculate, but I'm also not going to criticise him after having coronavirus coming back and running literally a marathon every week for the club because it's just, that's how much we're asking them to run, like 13 kilometres a game, three times a week. And, and that's a marathon. So it, it's just wild. I just, I can't, uh, the whole thing just bothers me. Like it, we're just, um, Jürgen Klopp and Pep said it this season, but we're asking players to do too much. Um, and it's fine to say they need bigger squads and to rotate, but it doesn't work like that. If you've got Lionel Messi and you need Lionel Messi to win you games and you need to maybe not lose more than three games a season, when do you drop Lionel Messi? And you jump into the Champions League and you need to get out of your Champions League. So when do you drop Lionel Messi? And then you're in the knockouts when you drop him? So it's it's fine to say you need a bigger squad, but what about you, clone Lionel Messi for Barcelona? So you can't really drop players. Teams will play their best players. And if you dump like 70 games a season on a team, that means one of the best players is going to play 70 games a season or or, or get injured. I mean, that's that's when they'll get a rest.
3: I mean, look at the nonsense that's coming out just in the last few hours about the Copa America. That's a Venezuela squad. has got 14 positive tests in it. Bolivia, give it four positive tests. Tournament is supposed to start tomorrow. It's already been moved twice. I mean, at what point you just to and say, guys, this is a fucking bad idea. How about we just wrap this for the year? Because yeah. everybody's said enough of this. It's just, it's just farcical.
2: The, the, the problem I have is that at no point anymore do I think decisions are being made with the best interests of the players. There's never a decision I look at and think that decision was made with the best interests of the players. And that's fucked up. Yeah. Yeah, I th-
1: think that there's sort of two approaches. And obviously, this is a spin-off from the Ericsson chat specifically. But we've come off the back of a pandemic hit season. Fixtures as a consequence have all been squeezed together. The Euros is happening a year late. And, you know, the one advantage, regardless of new competitions, is that, ironically, because it came under so much criticism, Qatar 2022 is a Winter World Cup next year. And I think it would be devastating for football if that was still a Summer World Cup in 2022, because it would squeeze the calendar even further. But, you know, option number one is less games or bigger squads and rotation, coupled potentially with either more subs or rolling subs or some kind of means to allow less minutes played. And option number two is to kind of go to the American concept of limitation of minutes, either stipulated by health officials or potentially just stipulated by the clubs. So if you look at the NBA, uh, LeBron James these days, doesn't play every single game he knows how many minutes he's going to be playing during an NBA basketball game which seems sort of farcical if you applied that to football and you said before Tottenham kickoff against Manchester United Harry Kane is definitely going to be substituted after 67 minutes because you have to play according to the circumstance of the game but I wonder whether in that slightly more extreme other option of not changing the calendar of not reducing the fixtures and so on. Um, I wonder whether the other option could be to have a kind of rolling sub aspect. So then you could actually take off Harry Kane and when, if you've got enough subs available, you wish to make a late change, you could bring them on again. So you take them off after 45 minutes because you're one nil up, you go 2-1 down, there's 10 minutes to go, could he then come back on? And that's the sort of American model, that's the kind of basketball approach because with LeBron, he might be on restricted minutes, but actually if the coach wants to play him for 30 seconds more or have him for the final play of the game, I think they can basically just kind of breach that plan. Ben, ben, the the, be the options, options,
0: options. The, 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 there aren't two options though, are there? I mean, there is a third option of can we stop expanding all of these tournaments and putting added pressure on players and increasing yeah. the amount they travel and having post-season tours away to the Far East for Premier League sides? Can we not have expanded Euros and World Cups? And can we not add more games to a Champions League that's already so congested with a group stage and going into a heavy knockout stage with two legs? knockout stages from a round of 16 and instead just get back to we have an fa cup a league cup a premier league of 20 teams and we have a proper european knockout tournament that means something rather than continuing to try and get everybody and their grandma involved in european football which doesn't make european football special anymore european football is special when you have the elite teams playing in it when psg barcelona isn't just we're going to see that every single season then it's boring and it just adds to more fixture congestion throughout the league. That's the third option, but you can't make that option because it's all, as Stephen said, it's all about the cash. That's the trouble at this point. As you say, it's it's decisions are being made purely on financial gain for big corporations and clubs as opposed to thinking about the strain it's going to put on elite athletes.
1: And I think as well, the thing that people don't talk about is the build-up. So that is the travel, as you've alluded to, that's the training. Because obviously when you look at all these games and the expansion, and you look at staggered fixtures during the pandemics, everything can be on television. So as a consequence, some teams have got shorter gaps between games as well. You kind of think, yes, but the more games, the bigger the squad gets, and in addition, The big players won't play in the League Cup. The big players won't play in the Europa League. So then if you add up the amount of games they play per season, is the number rising significantly? It probably is rising by four or five games, but it's not necessarily rising by the amount of fixtures you see on paper because the big names won't play in all of those games. And I get that argument, but the counterpoint is that Even if these top names don't end up playing in the Europa League, they're still ultimately going to end up travelling there. They're still ultimately going to have to do more training sessions because of those games. It's still going to take a mental toll. And, of course, during all of these periods, even just a standard training session on a dodgy pitch in Azerbaijan when you know you're not going to start in the game, you could still get injured at any point. And it's that sort of combination, I think, of air miles, and of training and of the matches that they actually play that makes the situation untenable and problematic. And the only solution, if you have all these games, is to keep expanding squads. And then obviously in the years that a team doesn't qualify for Europe, you end up having too big a squad and you have an unhappy squad because every player still ultimately wants to try and play every game. So it's sort of lose-lose because you only can protect your players by expanding your squad and having depth. And the more depth you have, the less you see the players as a fan that you'd mm. like to see in those games and the more unhappy your dressing room gets. I think
0: just to finish this off, I know Ben, you wanted to touch on something with Jonathan Pierce and how he handled the situation actually.
1: I just wanted to add as well, in case we want to slot it in somewhere, that as a commentator myself, who has done many a world feed game, you don't have in your ear guidance as to what the feed is going to do. So when people are listening to, say, Jonathan Pierce or Derek Ray, and they're praising them at large correctly for how they've handled it, it's important to note that they're not just handling it on the spot. They've got no idea what's coming next. And they have to react according to ultimately the shots that they see. So not only are they having to be spontaneous, not only are they probably hearing carnage in their ear from the BBC or ESPN studios, not only are they being told we're trying to get the studio ready, cut back in a minute, because it may be that the presenters are not in place or not mic'd up or decisions are being made off air, and insights being given us to the situation. There's all kinds of permutations, but the point I wanted to make is as a commentator, you don't know where they're gonna go to next. And that's with a lot of these ones. Sometimes they just turn to someone in the crowd who's like a sheikh or a dignitary, and you're like, yikes. And a good gallery will always give you a heads up and try and give you the information. But in this situation, the commentators are kind of just out there by themselves and having to react. And I thought that the ones that I've heard and the feedback I've seen on Twitter from the ones I haven't heard has been very positive about how respectful they were, even if the pictures were at odds with the sentiment that they were portraying.
0: Yeah, phenomenally handled by Jonathan Pierce in that moment on by the BBC and uh, and, and other broadcasters as well. Derek Ray all did an exceptional job in in how they covered. incident with christian erickson i've just been messaged this evening by somebody who works as a ob operator at football grounds and covering huge events who said that they can only thank the lord that they didn't have to make the decisions that were made today about the broadcast and that they just hope that that doesn't ever happen to them when they're working on a broadcast and i think to be honest that the main sentiment coming out of all of this as we started the podcast is that as we've done this Christian Eriksson right now is in a stable condition and a very difficult situation for everybody involved covering it watching it and the fact that Eriksson is stable is the most important thing to come out of all of this so I think no better a positive note to leave it on than that